We are talking reading relationships on the show today. Hierarchical relations, dynamic relations, and reciprocal relations. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wells on the back end production. This is the show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and we are very glad to have you with us for this episode. In the previous episode, we interviewed Dr. Shane Piasta, and she had written a chapter in the recently released Handbook on the Science of Early Literacy, edited by Dr. Sonia Cabell, Dr. Susan Newman, and Dr. Nicole Patton-Terry. We are interviewing another guest who wrote a fantastic chapter in that book. Her name is Dr. Young Suk Grace Kim, and she has research on how the different parts of reading are related and why that matters. I'm sure as a listener of the show, you are familiar with the simple view of reading or Scarborough's Rope, and I think those are great models. But one thing those models don't describe is how the different components of reading are related. And I think that matters very, very much for curriculum. I think it matters for instruction, and I think it matters for supporting our students in general. Just a reminder, if you appreciate what you hear on the show, you are more than welcome to donate to the show. You can just go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on About Your Host, and there is a link there that you can donate securely via PayPal. A couple of bucks would help do a lot for the operating costs of this podcast and help me keep doing what I enjoy doing for you all, and that's interviewing literacy researchers about how we can make sense of reading and reading instruction. And let's not forget writing either. Let me introduce our guest today. Her name is Dr. Young Suk Grace Kim, and she is a professor and senior associate dean at the School of Education, University of California at Irvine. Dr. Kim has a background as a classroom teacher in San Francisco, and her research spans a wide range of areas, including reading comprehension, reading fluency, oral language, listening comprehension, dyslexia, higher order cognitive skills, written composition, and the intricate connections between reading and writing. As you can see, she has a wealth of experience that she brings to the show today. Specifically, today we are talking about her chapter entitled Simplicity Meets Complexity, Expanding the Simple View of Reading with the Direct and Indirect Effects Model of Reading. And the acronym for that is D-I-E-R or DEER model. So just a quick caveat, this is a complex model that we really just scratched the surface on in our conversation. Dr. Kim uses the image of a house or a constructed building to describe the relationships between various reading constructs. Uh, to help you follow along with the conversation, I posted a link to the house figure in the show notes. I highly recommend clicking and viewing that link to help follow the content that we are discussing. So with that, let's get on to the show. Uh, make sure to stick around after the conversation for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Young Soup Grace Kim, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk about this. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. We're discussing a chapter that you wrote in the newly released Handbook on the Science of Early Literacy. Uh, we recently interviewed Dr. Shane Piasta on her chapter on early alphabet learning. And I'm really excited to talk about your chapter, which is actually chapter one in the text on 
the direct and indirect effects model of reading. But before we get to the model, would you please give a brief introduction of yourself and your research interests in literacy? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Young Suk Kim. Um, that's my formal name. Informally, I go by Young Kim. I'm a professor and a senior associate dean at the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine. I study children's reading comprehension, reading fluency, listening comprehension, and oral language, dyslexia, um, and also higher cognitive skills, as well as uh, written composition and reading and writing connections and relations. I've worked with uh, monolingual children from various linguistic backgrounds, including um, English, Korean, Chinese, Spanish, Kiswahili, as well as multilingual children in the U.S. That's fantastic. Curious, just a little bit of your backstory. How did you become interested in those, those different areas? I was a classroom teacher in primary grades and in high school in San Francisco. And I worked predominantly with multilingual children from language minority backgrounds, um, including a lot of English learners. And, um, and when I was teaching, I noticed a pattern among children um, in their reading development. Uh, it seemed that uh, some children had decoding skills in their first language, tended to uh, learn their L2 second language or English word reading more quickly than those children who did not. So I became very curious about reading development and decided to pursue it as my career. Wonderful. To frame a little bit of, of where we're headed in the conversation today, um, we're talking about the direct and indirect effects model of reading, which is a model that you've been investigating for over a decade now, probably even longer. Um, listeners of the show are, and even, even folks who are newer to the show, are probably familiar with The Simple View of Reading or Scarborough's Rope. We've talked uh, Leberge and Samuel's automaticity theories come up on the show and Kinch's construction integration model and Perfetti. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of different models out there. What is the purpose of all these different models? Are we trying to find one model that perfectly describes everything or, or why, why have all these different models? Well, this is a great question. There are a couple of things that I would like to share about this. Um, the first one is that um, these models address different aspects of skills and knowledge that contribute to reading. This is because reading is such a complex skill, so multiple theories attempt to explain different aspects. For example, the automaticity theory addresses one aspect, which is the role of automaticity in reading development. Although it is a very important aspect, it does not address all the other skills or knowledge that are critical to reading development. The second one is that these models represent evolving nature of science. With ongoing research in the field, we get updated information. And these models were presented at different times, representing cutting-edge knowledge at that time, and also reflect educational context at the time. For example, uh, the simple rereading was presented at a time when the absolutely necessary role of words reading did not receive its due attention. So 
the main point there was really that not only comprehension skill, but also word reading skill is necessary for reading comprehension because there was that demand at the time in educational context. Many aspects of these models remain validated. However, some aspects of these models have been updated and should be. It's important for us to stay in touch with the updates from research and theoretical models should reflect updates. I appreciate how you're using that term updates or updated in the sense that we're not necessarily putting all these models into a fighting ring and seeing which one wins out over the others, but that they're a reflection of the context that they're developed in with current research, but also that these models can evolve and develop over time. One thing that I appreciate about the direct and indirect effects model of reading is that it's a it's integrative in the sense that it's taking several different models and showing how they work together at a broader level. The D-I-E-R, do you pronounce that deer or is it just D-I-E-R? I pronounce it as a deer. <laughs> okay, that's good to know. So we'll just call it the deer model. Can you provide a broad overview of some of those uh, aspects that the deer model provides? Sure. Um, all theoretical models um, that have been validated have important contributions to the field. And the deer, in my opinion, expands these theories in several ways. The first one, the first way is um, deer specifies um, the skills and knowledge that are necessary uh, for word reading, listening comprehension, reading comprehension in a comprehensive manner. And that includes the ones that have not been included in some models. Um, so, for example, the simple way of reading does not specify nor deeply about what contributes to word reading and what contributes to listening comprehension or the relationship between word reading and listening comprehension. Um, other models do include some other aspects, but you know, with a focus on specific aspects. Um, in my opinion, DEER does include a comprehensive list. Uh, based on up-to-date research. And they include, for example, morphological awareness uh, for its role in word reading and its relation to oral language skills, text reading fluency, and uh, reading comprehension, as well as higher order cognitions and regulations, and also social emotions and executive function, all these things together in a comprehensive way in a single model. Um, the second way gear expands previous work is that it explicitly specifies the nature of religions among component skills and knowledge and their relation the relations among reading subskills. Um, so what I mean by this is that beyond listening or articulating skills that contribute to um reading comprehension, it's important to actually for us to specify and think about the interrelations of, among skills and knowledge. Dear posits that skills and knowledge are not in, independent. Instead, they're interdependent in a systematic and predictable way. And then there, and then there are three hypotheses about these structural relations. So those include hierarchical relations, and interactive or bidirectional relations and dynamic relations. So with the DEER model, one thing that it focuses on is component skills of reading. Uh, can you define what 
uh, component skills are and perhaps the ones that are relevant to the DEER model? Absolutely. Um, component skills are skills and knowledge that contribute to reading development, including oral language skills, executive function, high order cognitions and regulations, knowledge such as content, world knowledge, discourse knowledge, and social emotions towards reading, emerging literacy skills um, such as phonological, orthographic, and morphological awareness. So component skills are the, the specific constructs of reading. So thinking of how these relate together. Um, three types of relations that are specified within the DEER are mediation interactional relationships, hierarchical relations, and dynamic relations. Let's start with the first one. Can you provide a definition of a relation that's hierarchical? Sure. Hierarchical relations means that skills build on each other. The skills and knowledge um, that contribute to reading comprehension are not separate or independent, and they're related to one another, and many of them are hierarchically related. So you can think of hierarchical relations as chain reaction like dominoes. Uh, and I think the hierarchical is, is really important because it shows that, um, and, and you specify this in the chapter, that, you know, if there's if there's proficiency in a lower level skill that perhaps, you know, so one that's that's lower relative in the hierarchy, that more support or instruction in that area might not provide added benefit because there's they've reached a threshold, the students reached a threshold, and and so that would suggest progressing to uh, a skill that's higher up in the in the hierarchy. It's something that's more complex or abstract. Is that is that an implication of the of the hierarchical relations component? Yes, and one uh, figure that I use to highlight hierarchical relations among skills is this building structure. Let me go over that structure a little bit. I think that that's going to explain what we mean by hierarchical um, relations here. Um, if you think of it, developing reading skills is like constructing a house or building a house. The figure in a book chapter and other publications has several components, um, such as root and the beam, pillars, and foundations. At the top, or roof, um, is reading comprehension because it's built on the other skills and knowledge. Text reading fluency is placed in the beam that connects word reading and this and comprehension pillars because text reading fluency acts as a bridge connecting word reading and listening comprehension to reading comprehension and this uh, partially. The two pillars that sustain the beam and the roof are word reading and listening comprehension because these two skills are absolutely necessary for reading comprehension. If you will, you can think of, like, for example, if one of them, word reading or listening comprehension, is absent, the building structure collapses, right? Um, the foundation that supports word reading includes immersion literacy skills such as knowledge and awareness of analogy, orthography, and morphology. And now the foundation for uh, that supports listening comprehension includes higher-order cognitions and regulations, such as you know, making inferences, perspective taking, uh, setting goals, uh, monitoring your own performance, etc., as well as foundational oral language skills such as vocabulary and grammatical knowledge. Now, 
the foundation of all these pieces that I just talked about are domain general cognitive skills and executive functions because these are necessary for all of those pieces that I just talked about. So um, one example, working memory and attention control are necessary for development of phonological awareness. Phonological awareness is necessary and consequential for word reading. Word reading, in turn, is important for text reading fluency, which in turn is critical for reading comprehension. So you see this chain reaction, right? So working memory and attentional control is a foundation for emergent literacy skills, which in turn is, you know, which are important for word reading and such. It goes on step one step at a time, right? Um, you can also think about working memory and attentional control in relation to the other pieces. For example, they're important for vocabulary and grammatical knowledge, which is important for higher order cognitions. And they are important for listening comprehension and go also on to all the way to reading comprehension. So if you think about it, um, there are, you know, the reason why I call it as like a chain reaction or chain of relations is because for you to have um, ensure uh, your students successful reading comprehension, every single one of them have to be successful and have to be mastered. If one of them plays, is not, um, like I said, success, successfully learned, then that's going to be an obstacle and that's going to be problematic and has, is going to have upward chain effect. So that's where the term direct and indirect effects is coming from, as we could say something like um, attention is directly related to foundational reading skills, but indirectly related to reading comprehension or it, it's it's filtered through other components before it gets to reading comprehension. Is that an accurate summary? Exactly. In the book chapter, I talk about, I use the term mediation, and that's exactly what mediation does. So when things are related to another, in a kind of chain of relationship, that's a mediation. So for example, it's a mediation technically is how one factor explains, uh, helps explain or mediate the relationship between two other factors, right? Um, so in the field of reading, the example we just talked about is, for example, the role of, you know, phonological awareness in reading or reading comprehension is really through uh, word reading, right? So phonological awareness is important in reading comprehension, but it's because it's critical for uh, word reading. If you think about another example, um, say in the field of health, right? Um, let's say we're thinking about, we're studying the relations among, um, exercise and weight loss and improved health. Uh, you may initially think that exercise directly leads to improved health. However, when we examine mediation process of what explains the relationship, um, we find that weight loss plays a role uh, as a mediator, at least to some extent. So what that means is that the relation between exercise and improved health is really explained by or mediated by weight loss. Um, so mediation provides insights um, into the mechanisms through exercise impact health. Perfect. And then components can also be re related dynamically. Can you explain what a dynamic relation is? Absolutely. So dynamic relations uh, means that relations are not uniform. 
instead, um, the relation relations change or differ as a function of several factors, um, such as development, um, and activity and task environment. Um, so let me give you an example of development and the interact dynamic relations as a function of development. So in the beginning days of reading development, say, you know, kindergarten, first grade, um, reading comprehension is really largely determined by one's word reading skill and its component skills, like, you know, phonological awareness, knowing letter names and sound, and morphological awareness, et cetera. Now, as children's uh, reading skills develop as a more advanced phase of development, reading comprehension is largely determined by listening comprehension and its component skills. So, uh, the contributing skills look different in the beginning phase versus at a more developed things. Can you describe a little bit why that's really important? Absolutely. So um, it has instructional implications because in the beginning phase develop in the beginning phase of um, reading development, it is absolutely necessary for to help students have solid foundational skills or early uh, reading skills, such as word reading, spelling, or their their um, uh, foundational component skills such as you know uh, phonological awareness or graphic awareness and morphological awareness. If they don't have this established very strongly, then the other pieces, for example, listening comprehension and um, its contributing skills such as you know making inferences, understanding multiple perspectives, vocabulary knowledge, all these things cannot really play a role as much. So in, in thinking about relations, um, component skills can also be related reciprocally. Can you describe what a, a reciprocal relationship is and, and perhaps give an example or two? Skills and knowledge have um, bidirectional relations over time or over development. Uh, let me share a few examples. Uh, one is the relation between social emotions towards reading and reading skills. Um, say a student experiences a difficulty in um, word reading or decoding, and this experience will put them off about reading and then make them feel that they're not as good a reader, then they would uh, likely avoid um, reading activities, and this will deprive them of opportunities to practice reading. And then this will turn have a negative influence on reading skills development. So. This way, social emotions towards reading and reading skills development have bidirectional or cyclical, cyclical relations. Another example is morphological awareness and vocabulary. Um, say there are two students, right? One student knows a lot more vocabulary words than the other student. And the student who knows a large number of vocabulary words will have higher chance of developing morphological awareness if the student notices that word share meaning units such as morphemes. Say, for example, the student knows the words like redo, uh, rewrite, reread, and rebuy, right? Then the child might um, recognize that these words all include the word, the, the, the part re, the prefix re. 
And then the student will have a greater chance of inferring the meaning of prefix re because the student knows the meaning of we do, we buy, we write, we read, right? So this is now uh, morphological awareness. Then the knowledge of or awareness of with this knowledge, the student will be able to learn vocabulary words that include the re prefix as he encounters in listening comprehension context or reading comprehension context. Right. And also words with other morphemes because now the student is developing an awareness that words are composed of smaller meaningful units called morphemes. And they will utilize this um, morphological awareness in word learning. So, you know, this is what another example of kind of bidirectional supportive relation between vocabulary and morphological awareness. This extends to a lot of other skills in the model. Uh, for example, knowledge, right? Content knowledge and topic knowledge matters a lot for listening comprehension and reading comprehension. And they have, uh, you know, bi-directional relations. And uh, same is for other uh, pieces as well. So when we're thinking of a, a reciprocal relationship or, or, or bi-directional, it's not necessarily that one is is hierarchically positioned different than the other, but it's that they mutually support each other. And I'm really glad you brought up that notion of like reading comprehension and content knowledge, because I feel in our contemporary, you know, literacy context, there's a bit of a tug of war, you know, between the two of, well, it's actually content knowledge that matters. And um, but but looking at the model, it's thinking of, well, we 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 should be able to use reading comprehension to drive content knowledge or to develop more content knowledge. But at the same time, the content knowledge also feeds back into into reading comprehension and that that might not um, be as uh, as dynamic of a story. It might be a little bit more complex and nuanced. But I, I think understanding uh, relationships like that, you know, really matter because it shows we can, uh, another guest on the show said, paddle both sides of the canoe, that we, we don't have to worry about just one, but we can support both um, mutually. Absolutely. So, you know, what I said earlier, things are related. You know, their things, skills, and knowledge here are all interdependent, and they're independent in a hierarchical way, but also non-hierarchical way, just by directional development wise as well. I I love that notion because it shows that instruction is going to change and develop according to your student's level of proficiency, and the framing it or summarizing it as a building is one of the ways you presented of having me, I'll just kind of go through and summarize the building of at the the most foundational aspect, things like do, domain general cognitive skills and executive functions, and then progressing on the more word reading side of emergent literacy skills like orthography, phonology, morphology, and that being complemented by foundations in higher order cognition regulation and language skills, and then pillars of word reading and listening comprehension on either side of the building. And text reading fluency being a beam or superstructure, sort of connecting those two, and then the roof being reading comprehension. Let's progress for a minute and talk about what what this might mean for instruction. What what would you describe are some of the ma major implications for the direct and indif indirect effects model of reading? What it might mean for instruction? I would say one implication is that reading instruction should start early. And I use the word reading instruction in a very broad 
um, way because what I'm going to talk about may not, will not look like reading instruction on the appearance, but it actually is. So if you look at the bottom or the foundations part, right, of, um, in the, of the structure or figure, uh, immersion literacy skills and oral language skills develop before children enter school. So since they are building foundations for word reading and listening comprehension, these skills should be taught early in kindergarten and on, as was even before kindergarten. And I'm not talking about, you know, paper, pencil, and drilling kill type of instruction. And these um, skills can be taught in a very engaging um, and meaningful manner. Political awareness can be taught just using, you know, sound play, right? Working, playing with uh, speech sounds. Morphological awareness, the same thing. We can have word games, word play. Um, also, say, you know, kaya or the cognitive skills, such as making inferences, understanding different perspectives, or monitoring your own comprehension. It can be all taught in an oral language context during, say, uh, repeated reading, right? So you can read a book that is engaging and ask students um, that require, you know, questions that require making inferences or understanding uh, multiple perspectives or, you know, making sure that kids actually, when they listen to stories, um, things make sense to them, right? All this can be done in a very engaging way before children can, say, conventionally uh, read words. So before they engage in reading comprehension instruction, they actually should engage in listening comprehension and engage in, say, kind of immersion literacy skills instruction. Um, another implication um, is that reading instruction should be a multi-component. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, you heard about it, but I wanted to emphasize this especially in the context of the debate of science of reading, because people take science of reading in so many different ways, according to not only this model here, but also according to other evidence. Um, now, reading instruction should address all the pieces shown here. That's why reading is so complex, right? So comp foundational skills such as word reading and immersion literacy skills should be explicitly and systematically taught. In addition, Listening comprehension and its component skills, such as vocabulary, um, sentence uh, sensor skills, high order combinations and regulations, and uh, background knowledge, all those things have to be taught. So we should not focus on one thing, such as words reading and phonics, or listening comprehension or meaning making, right? So focusing on one pillar of the skill, say, you know, going back to the in the figure or the, the illustration of the house structure, building structure, focusing on one pillar of skill and neglecting the other pillar jeopardizes successful development of um, reading comprehension. Um, one last piece I would like to talk about in terms of instruction implication, I think it's, this one is actually um, very critical for implementation that is differentiated instruction. So what you see here in the figure is that students will vary in terms of their strengths and areas of needs in all the areas shown here in the figure. So students who are strong in some skills 
then they don't need as much instructional time on that area. So, for example, students who are strong in word reading and associated emergent literacy skills like phonological awareness do not spend as much instructional time on those areas. But in contrast, where students who are weak in those areas spend more time. So, one size, a one size fits all instruction for all children is not really effective. And it risks um, disengaging children who are already who have developed um, skills in the target areas and those who are actually struggling and need more intensive instruction. Um, here, uh, what I mean by uh, differentiated instruction is not one-on-one -on -one instruction uh, because this is not, you know, one-on-one -on -one instruction is not practical in the classroom settings. Uh, what I mean is really um, small group instruction that's informed by assessment information so that you know exactly your students' needs and profiles, and then you teach according to your students' needs. And you can uh, think about students' areas of strengths and needs based on the skills you see in the figure and according to the chain of relations there. I really appreciate those instructional implications. If I can maybe summarize, you know, we're not thinking of it. It's not either word reading support or listening conference support. It's not either or, it's both and. And that especially in um, early literacy, the listening comprehension side can be supported explicitly without print, that um, inference making or perspective taking or other aspects of the, that listening comprehension pillar can be supported orally in a very engaging way that will prepare for once the students are able to read proficiently in print that now there's a language comprehension side to um, to support the print reading. Um, and then thinking about our, our instructional response should be contingent on the, the data that we're seeing about the students of their individual um, profiles of which area their, their strengths are and where they need to uh, develop more. Um, you, you mentioned assessment. I want to I dip a little bit more into that. What, what does the DEER model imply for uh, assessment? Sir, I just talked about differentiated instruction, right? And let me link that to assess because assessment serves a particular need in the context here where I'm going to talk about formative assessment. So, you know, in the context of differentiated instruction that meets um, students' needs, you might wonder how do we know students' needs? And this information is gained from assessment. If you will, you can think about assessment as like a crystal ball, right? Um, as you know, there are different types of assessment. And here I'm talking about formative assessments, not summative assessment. Formative assessments such as screening, progress monitoring, or monitoring of mastery learning and uh, benchmark assessments. And the skills included in a formative assessment uh, will depend on the student grade levels or developmental uh, phase. So if you think about at the beginning of kindergarten, children, the vast majority of children are not expected to have word reading skill yet, right? So uh, screening and progress monitoring would include predictors of word reading uh, or a, pre, a reading precursor skill, such as phonological awareness, their knowledge of word, um, letter names and sounds, as well as morphological awareness. There are language skills, including vocabulary and listening comprehension, et cetera. 
as children develop their word reading skills and spelling, you can actually start to include those things as part of, you know, formative assessment. Uh, in grade one, uh, many children expected to actually have word reading skills. Therefore, you would include word reading. And uh, about, you know, depending on the context, about the beginning of the year or mid of the year, you know, text reading classes should be definitely considered. And as kids develop, of course, you know, screening should include reading comprehension as well. So you can think about assessment in line with children's uh, developmental phase. So that's one. Um, the other piece is you can think about, again, let me go back to the house figure again, because I think it actually has an implication. So if you think about assessment, approaching um, assessment using the figure, right? For screening, um, you would actually stop, start from the top, right? When children are ready, um, or expected to have reading comprehension screening would include, you'll start with that, you know, reading comprehension. And when children are not expected to actually have a full passage level of reading comprehension, then you would actually, you know, screen with word reading and listening comprehension. And then if they are not really ready, then you go down, right? So you just, if you look at the structure, you go from the top to bottom. The same thing for diagnostic, say, you know, you conduct a screening assessment and there are some students who require further needs. Um, you want to take a deeper look at those child, those children, then you would actually go into this uh, figure and then try to identify the causes. Say you're teaching, you're a first grade teacher, your screening in the beginning of the year included children's word reading, right? Including phonics and other things. And then you find, identify a few kids who really need a little bit more intensive attention. Then you, for you to figure out why or the sources of their um, struggle or difficulty in word reading, you would follow up with assessments uh, on phonological awareness or orthographic awareness that includes knowing letter names, letter sounds, patterns, orthographic patterns, like, you know, phonics patterns as well as morphological awareness, right? So, you know, that hierarchical relations um, hypothesis that we talked about a few minutes ago, that has implications in terms of how we approach um, assessment. I really like those implications because um, it, it, it helps it helps. I think it helps keep instruction and, and, and assessment very pragmatic in the sense that uh, you know, someone who's listening to this episode and they might be thinking, oh, so I, I need to be assessing my students in word reading accuracy and reading fluency and reading comprehension and, you know, executive functioning and phonemic awareness and, and uh, you know, uh, you know, letter naming fluency or you know, that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily mean that every student needs every assessment that it's it's um, starting from top level uh, and then peeling your way down to find where the specific the specific gaps are. So. You know, for example, if I have a third grade student that's reading, um, you know, proficiently on on accuracy and, and oral reading rate, I probably don't need to administer, say, a phonics screener or a phonemic awareness screener toward that student because the the top level skill or the the, the skill that, um, you know, I would expect that student to be proficient in that it, it's happening. So there's not necessarily a need to to drill down deeper. Is that a is that a correct uh, summary of, of of what you were describing? 
Exactly. For those students who are developing according to, you know, developmental benchmark, right? You know, you don't need to all, go all the way deep, like all the sources. But for those who do require a little bit more attention, definitely exactly the way you explained is great. I actually like the way you said, like a peeling your way, peeling away. The challenging aspect then is um, finding assessments that are accurate. And I think there's a lot more out there on the word reading side, but perhaps on the yeah. listening comprehension side, there's there's not as much. But I, I do feel a sense that it's 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 coming more. I, I feel that there's a lot of attention in that area and there's a lot of folks developing scales and screeners and diagnostics on the the listening comprehension side as well. Do you have any recommendations for if there's a teacher that perhaps doesn't have a really robust set of assessments that they can use to to get really diagnostic with students? How might that teacher use the the DEER model, um, but but perhaps without, you know, uh, a set of really stellar assessments to to help with it? Well, that's a really good question because you're absolutely right about assessments and availability in terms of, say, you know, word-reading-related pieces versus listening comprehension side of it. Um, I think of the challenge, there are at least two aspects in terms of challenges. One is normed and standardized measures of listening comprehension are not as available for listening comprehension compared to word reading. And what I mean by listening comprehension, it has to actually, there, there's a variation of listening comprehension measures. Some um, taps really shallow level, like a level of comprehension, whereas some other really goes into, say, so-called literal comprehension, shallow comprehension, as well as more deeper comprehension, such as inferential and evaluating information and things like that, right? So when you look at listening comprehension measures, even among norm measures, we have to really uh, look at like exactly, you know, what are they tapping into. So that's one. The second one is even if those measures are available, they don't really kind of um, tell you how to interpret in terms of, you know, categorize the types of questions about, okay, so in this one, you know, students' performance in processing and remembering the content of uh, presented text, which is a literal comprehension, and how they perform and how do they perform in inferring information or understanding different perspectives, you know, which is higher level of comprehension. They don't tell you about, you know, the, the norm measures do not actually separate those out and helps you with that. So that's really another challenge. Um, so if I am a classroom teacher, Say, luckily, you have access to some high-quality assessments of listening comprehension, or there are actually some measures of um, you know, inference-making that's normed, right? For example, if you have access to those, and if you have some concern, concerns for specific students, you want to you know, work with them and learn more about that students, then you can use those normed assessments. That's one scenario. In another scenario, and you don't have in your school districts or in your school, you don't have access to those. What I would do is I would use um, the books or short stories or short informational text that I have access to. And I will look over um, uh, or develop questions, right? I will think about, okay, what are some 
questions that are addressed directly, right? Information that is directly mentioned in the text. So those are literal questions, right? And then I will also develop questions that students have to really uh, infer information, either using their background knowledge or information, connecting information in the given text, right? So I will develop such questions and see how your target student does and where your target student's comprehension breakdown occurs. And I would do that not a single time, but over multiple times using different stories and different texts so that you develop a general pattern. That's what I would do. I think that's fantastic. So we've been we've been talking the direct and indirect effects model of reading, but you have also worked on the direct and indirect effects model of writing, which which could be an, its own you know entire podcast interview. Uh, but can you give us a, a brief snippet on the the direct and indirect effects model of writing? The direct and indirect effects model of writing, I call it do. Um, the idea of do is very similar to there because very similar ideas apply to both reading and writing. Uh, although there are differences, certainly differences, important differences between reading and writing, there are a lot of overlaps and shared processes and skills. Uh, you can actually think about Duel. I actually had a publication on Duel that uses the same building structure or house structure and maps skills that contribute to written composition. And they include, say, you know, text writing fluency. Uh, they include um, spelling and handwriting fluency or keyboarding fluency. That's like, you know, that one pillar. And the other pillar is, uh, instead of listening comprehension, it's called oral composition. It's your ability to produce text in oral context, right? And then the other pieces are very similar. You know, the building foundation for spelling is really essentially identical to foundations for word reading, including orthographic awareness, phonological awareness, morphological awareness. And the building uh, foundation for oral composition is identical to listening comprehension. And all underneath all is domain general cognition or uh, executive function. As well as, you know, we have content knowledge, world knowledge, and discourse knowledge that contributes to writing, as well as the social emotional aspects, attitudes towards writing, uh, self-concept, motivation, all those things. So I think you might kind of readily notice the similarities uh, between reading model here and then writing model and deal. Um, based on the similarity, I actually proposed and have examined a theoretical model that looks at reading and writing connections. Uh, that's uh, the model is called the interactive dynamic literacy model. Um, so for those who are interested in reading writing connections, I'll be happy to share a chapter or article or any information that you have. I think that's fantastic. It was actually on the show, uh, clear back episode 11, Dr. Emily Phillips Galloway was talking about core academic language skills, and she mentioned the the do model. And then I, I went afterward and was reading more about it. And what struck me, and this is an overgeneralization, but that it, it seemed that it was so similar to the reading one, but the relationships were all flipped. You know, it was sort of like thinking of writing as reading comprehension backwards. And 
I, I know it's more nuanced than that, but uh, to me, that really strengthened my confidence of, of, you know, if I'm trying to support students, if I'm supporting them in a domain, I, I can support them on the reading side and the writing side. And that makes language arts seem much more doable if I see that everything I'm doing has two sides of it. And it's not, I have reading over here and, and, and writing, you know, over there and, and never the twain shall meet, right? Exactly. So um, if you think about, uh, it's interesting because, you know, when you think about teacher development program, right, teacher education programs, they have methods, reading methods course, and then they have reading methods or ELA course, right? If you also think about um, districts and curriculum, there's a reading curriculum. And there's a writing curriculum, right? As if there are different domains, but theoretically and empirically evidence-wise, and also if you think about functionally, right, how reading and writing are used together to serve communication purposes, there's so much interaction and overlap, right? And so there's really huge implication about how to teach reading and writing, essentially, like, you know, not only you teach reading-specific aspects and also writing-specific aspects, there's also, there's interior, the need for a very systematic integration as well. And a lot of times that might get uh, missed in our, in education practices. So we've, we've covered a lot of ground um, and, and we're very grateful for you to join us on the show today, Dr. Kim. Do you have any last thoughts on how a teacher could use the, the direct and indirect effects model of reading to support instruction? Uh, one thought is that, you know, reading is complex and there's so many things that contribute to it. And at first sight, you might think that this is disarraying. There's just too many things, right? But I think one of the things that I was hoping um, that deer can help you is, yes, there are a lot of things, but they're in, organized in a certain way, in a very systematic way. So by looking at, say, the figure, right, I hope this helps you understand uh, what it takes and, you know, the need for addressing all these piece, different pieces in a systematic way. Wonderful. Uh, Dr. Kim, thanks so much for joining us on the show. One last question. Uh, what makes a good teacher? This is a big question. I'm smiling because this is a big question. And uh, there's so many aspects and factors. I would say, uh, just to name a few, um, you know, it includes, um, so the factors include, you know, teachers definitely have to know uh, content and pedagogy, right? So their knowledge and expertise and in content knowledge and pedagogical knowledge, including, you know, technology, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, class management, absolutely, about good class management, you know, there's no teaching. Um, of course, you need uh, some dispositions such as passion for teaching, your continuous, um, you know, uh, learning and reflection, growth mindset, and empathy in establishing relationships with kids and also patience. So I think all these are really, really foundational. And um, that's, and there's so many things. That's why it's hard to become a good teacher. However, Ultimately, though, I think all these things together manifest in a way so that some a good teacher, I guess, is someone who uses all these aspects and qualities to inspire and motivate, motivate and empower students so that they can reach their full 
Thank you. Dr. Young Suk Grace Kim, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. A great big thanks to Dr. Kim for joining us to interview about the direct and indirect effects of reading model. And I've got two quick takes. The first one is I want to talk briefly about models of reading. Uh, if you go back, when I was finishing my dissertation, I took a hiatus from the show for about six or nine months. And during that, I released a couple hiatus episodes. I just couldn't be kept away. And I talked a little bit about the rope and about the simple view of reading. And I also talked about Kinch's construction integration model. And, and I honestly haven't listened to those um, since I released them, but it might be worth going back and listening to those a little bit in depth if reading models are something that interests you. Reading models are something that interests me quite a bit because I believe that for a classroom teacher or for a PLC or for a team of educators trying to support student reading and writing outcomes, a model helps with decision making. It helps ensure that the student is getting not too much, not too little, but just right amounts of the things that they need. Right now, in our current educational milieu, the uh, Simple View of Reading and Scarborough's Rope are very popular models. And I don't have an issue with those models. I think they are strong models. I think they are useful models. And if I'm talking to somebody who is brand new to reading, maybe it's a group of undergraduates, maybe I'm talking with the public, uh, maybe if I'm talking with um, you know teachers and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm going to reference the Simple View of Reading and or Scarborough's Rope. However, I think for... Uh, for those who are ready to move past the 101 and who are ready for the 102, there's a whole slew of other models that can help us think more in more nuanced ways and more sophisticated ways about how we can support reading instruction. And I think the DEER model is a fantastic way that we can do that. Dr. Kim said this great in the podcast, where it's not so much that we're looking for one model to perfectly explain everything, but it's that these models are sometimes a reflection of their current educational context, and they're also a reflection of the research that is present when the model is created. And so we should be able to allow models to become updated and more sophisticated, more nuanced over time. I also remember in one of my very first doc classes, we talked about models of reading, and uh, the analogy that was used was thinking of it about as a giant landscape. And if you're looking at a giant landscape, you can take everything in at once, but it might be really hard to see this forest over there or this river on the other side. It's, it's hard to see the small micro features. However, if you zoom in and see and, and you're focusing on just the micro features, it's hard to see the entire landscape. And so sometimes that's what reading models offer is a complementary view of specific spots of specific aspects of reading. I think the best example of an entire broad 10,000 foot entire landscape view is going to be the simple view of reading because it only has two ingredients, word recognition and language comprehension, the end. Um, however, if we want to see a lot more, if we want to see a lot more 
finite parts of that landscape, we might use something like LeBurge and Samuel's automaticity theory, and we can zoom in on one specific aspect. We might use um, Linnea Airy's uh, stages of reading development theory, and that's going to help us zoom in on another element. So these, these models shouldn't be, I'm, I'm on a couple listservs and email threads and groups that where I sometimes see people going to battle with one model versus another. And I feel that as a really futile exercise because it's more, what are you trying to do? And then you use the model that best matches what you are trying to do. And I think that's a much better way to look at reading models is, is we can accept that it has their trust, it has their strengths and it has their weaknesses, but that by looking at the specific aspects that they bring to the table, we can use it to make successful decisions. My other quick take I want to talk about is the relations between these components. So I remember teaching in the classroom and I felt like a lot of the time I just was doing this scattershot of a whole bunch of different things. Uh, I was doing this and this and this and this and I just was like racing through a whole bunch of different things and I didn't see number one, how they fit together, but, but more importantly, how they were related. And as I progressed throughout my PhD program, that was one thing that some of these models offered for me was for me to begin to see a hierarchy of skills or a way through which there was more basic, more concrete skills, more complex, more abstract skills. And that allowed me to start feeling like when I was in the classroom, when I was overlapping with my, my PhD courses, that I could start adapting and adjusting my instruction better to meet my students because I understood what was required more, what was required less, and how they were related. And so thinking of are these are these aspects reciprocally related? Are they hierarchically related? Are they dynamically dynamically related? Is a great way to take your reading is a great way to take reading instruction and supporting our students to the next level. So in the show notes, I provided a link to uh, Dr. Kim's Deer model, and um, it's worth taking some time and looking at all the different arrows of how the different aspects are related. We really only scratched the surface in the conversation. Uh, this this could have very easily been a two-parter. But I think it's worth, within your instruction, having a hierarchy of, of, and maybe it's looking at your standards, maybe it's looking at your curriculum, but a hierarchy of which aspects of it are more complex and more abstract and which are more concrete and more specific. And being able to push your students from the more concrete and specific to the more complex and the abstract. Uh, when we get to when we really get to caring about reading comprehension, there does, the deepest reading comprehension is very complex and very abstract. And so it is absolutely essential to focus on those concrete, discrete skills that we've, we were mentioning on the reading foundation side, but we also have to be able to meaningfully incorporate other aspects of reading to be able to progress our students to very complex, very abstract thought while they are in difficult and rigorous text. Hey, that is all I have for you today. If you enjoyed this show or any of the other shows, the best thing that you can do is share it with a friend or a colleague. You can also go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on About Your Host, and you can donate to the podcast. A dollar a show would do a whole lot to keep the lights running here and to make sure that the Teaching Literacy Podcast doesn't go anywhere. So with that, this is Jake saying thanks for joining us here for this episode of the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's go and teach reading just a little bit better.